Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, Ivan. Welcome. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We've got some, a little bit more recent history here. I like to mix it up, as you know, on the podcast. We go deep history. We do the Stone Age here. We go all the way back. We cover a lot of ground. And I talk to a lot of historians, I talk to a lot of archaeologists, I talk to veterans of great historical moments of more recent history. And sometimes I like to talk to practitioners. I like to talk to people who wield power, the politicians, the civil servants, the ambassadors and diplomats. And today I've got one right here on the podcast, Gavin Barwell. He's a politician. He's the former Downing Street Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, Theresa May. He was a member of Parliament till 2017, and then he helped Theresa May run her administration until she had to leave office in order to get the old Brexit deal over the line. This is not just going to be a political podcast, not all about gossip, who said what, when about Brexit, because I'm at the end of my tether, I can't cope with all that stuff. This, if you've heard me listen to politicians before, hopefully it's a bit more general. It's a bit more about power, about the people, about what it does to you, wielding power. It's a bit more about us as history fans trying to understand about the human element in these great historical stories that we're so familiar with. We happen to be talking about Gavin Barwell at the beginning of the 21st century, dealing with the crisis of Brexit and other problems. But I think it's fun to think about some of the things he says in the context of some of the other great moments of history that we hear so much about in this podcast. So I hope you'll forgive me talking about some very recent history indeed. If you want to do a deep dive, if you want to go back to some of that, you know, a bit more, uh, if you're medieval is your thing, the ancient world, got it all. Got it all. Tongue China, got it all. Go to History Hit TV. All the podcasts are there, all without the ads. It's the only place you can get all the podcasts, the whole back catalogue, thousands or so of them now. Crikey. It's also a place where you can watch history documentaries. Record numbers of people are watching our Pearl Harbor documentary at the moment. So thank you for everyone who's subscribed to do that. Hope you're enjoying the service. It works everywhere. The internet works. If you sign up today, you get 14 days free. Go to historyhit.tv. That's historyhit.tv. But in the meantime, let's hear more from the man who's walked the corridors of power, Gavin Barwell. Enjoy. Gavin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is all I like getting the doers on here, Gavin, because we have the historians on here who spend their days, their careers, looking into what people like you did and what you were thinking, and now I can actually just ask you directly. I can cut out the middle person. So there's a... There's a great quote at the end of the book, um, which I'm sure you know, by um, Teddy yes. Roosevelt called The Man in the Arena, which is about the difference between the doers and the, the commentators. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for making me feel so rubbish about that. But no, that's, that's, that's a very special <laughs> quote, isn't it? But can I ask you, first of all, because this is not a current affairs podcast, this is a history podcast, so I'm really fascinated by and every politician and official that comes on here. I always ask them, from the outside, you guys are running around in your official vehicles. They have all the trappings of power, the corridors of power. Do you feel powerful? Do you feel like masters and mistresses of your own destiny when you're sitting in those rooms, in those corridors of power? 
So I think you you feel powerful in the the world, and certainly if you go to another country, people treat you in that way. That's one of the surprises that I had about being chief of staff that you actually get treated like you're the second most important person after the prime minister ahead of other government ministers. But do you feel masters of your own destiny? I can't say for those two years that I felt that either I or Theresa were masters of our own destiny because the parliamentary arithmetic was such that, you know, we may have been in Downing Street, but you were effectively governing the country in coalition with Parliament. That, of course, is true. So the weird thing about the British Constitution, although not just British, as Joe Biden is exploring at the moment, it's all about the parliamentary arithmetic and the legislative uh, branch of government. It's interesting what you just said there about being chief of staff. Just as the office of prime minister sort of emerged organically from the the mists of the late 17th and early 18th centuries, chief of staff is kind of a new thing, right? I mean, when you were a, a kid going into politics, were there chiefs of staff in the same way? No. Uh, I think the first person that formally had the title was Jonathan Powell, who did the job for Tony Blair. So really only just over 20 years old. Now, there were definitely, I think you can probably think of a few people that worked for previous prime ministers who may have had some of the roles, but certainly in terms of the formal title, uh, it's a relatively recent import from the US. And what does that tell us? Why is it just because we copy the Americans and all things? Or is there something about government? Is there something about the modern world that the prime minister needs their own prime minister? Yeah, so I think it's um, we've we've had a fairly recent trend with the sort of army of political advisors that now surround our senior politicians. You went back really maybe to sort of Callahan Thatcher's time. That's when that began, but before that, really was very rare for for ministers to have political advisors. And as the numbers have grown, the need for someone who is the chief political counsel and managing the rest of the team, I guess, has evolved over time. So you've been in the executive branch in, in Downing Street. You've been an MP. You've been a kind of party man. Now you're in the House of Lords. What's that taught you about the British Constitution? Where is power? Where, what's changing? And is it changing for better or for worse? So I think that famously, we don't have a written constitution. And therefore, where is power? It's kind of where political authority is. So at the moment, we've got a prime minister who's won a big election. He's got a large majority. And therefore, power is very centralised in Downing Street. Seems to me, if you look at the recent reshuffle, you saw a prime minister who is very comfortable in his grip on his party, felt very able to make the changes that he wanted to make in his government. So you've got a very strong prime minister. And you think back through my political lifetime, I can think of other moments where that was true. Definitely periods in the early parts of Tony Blair's premiership, definitely periods in Margaret Thatcher's premiership, where those individuals were in a hugely strong political position because they were proven election winners. I think at other times, power is much more diffuse. You know, when I got appointed as Chief of Staff, it was immediately after the 2017 election. Theresa, if you remember, had called that election, hoping to turn a small majority into a big one, and it actually lost her majority altogether. And that didn't just weaken the government's position relative to Parliament, it also weakened her own authority within her own cabinet. I looked at Theresa May, I thought there was a fundamentally hardworking public servant who probably had all sorts of ambitions to do things. Like, I, I mean, I'd love to be Prime Minister. I'd love to do loads of things like plant more trees and all that kind of stuff. But affairs, dear boy, like events, you're just not able... Is it very frustrating? You're sitting in Downing Street and you've got all this power and you've got an army and a navy and you've got all these people working and you're just spending all day like negotiating with some idiot like Boris Johnson. I mean, isn't that just... It does, that's not why you get into politics, presumably. It must be infuriating. I think nearly every prime minister will tell you 
the, the things that they were passionate about on the day they walked into the building, they get to spend only a small minority of their time on those things. I've, um, first of all, I think increasingly prime ministers deal with foreign relations more than their foreign secretaries. Yeah. So there's a whole plethora of NATO summits, G7s, G20s, UN General Assemblies, European Councils when we were in the EU, Commonwealth summits. There's a whole load of that that takes up all of the Prime Minister's time. Whereas the things that probably motivated them were about domestic policy. You know, they probably got elected to improve our health service or our school system or our economy or tackle crime more effectively or improve the environment. And then you are exactly as you said, you are at the mercy of events. Now, in Theresa's case, I think it was clear on the day that she took over what the big challenge was going to be, which was negotiating a Brexit deal and then getting it through Parliament. But if you take Blair's premiership, he probably would never have envisaged Iraq and Afghanistan as issues that he would be dealing with on the day that he walked into number 10. So things happen around the world and that changes the direction of your premiership. It must be so annoying because you're the guy who actually reached the top of the greasy pole. You know, like once you're up there and you're like, even I don't feel like I can do what I want to do. And I'm, I'm the guy who's won. So as much as you can, you try and make time for those things. You try and eat out space for the things that you proactively want to drive. But there's always decisions coming at you that you have to take. They're not things you've initiated, but things happen either domestically in the country or globally that confront you and you've got to respond to. So that's sort of, I don't know whether Macmillan ever actually said that quote. There's a lot of dispute about whether he actually said it, but the one, the events, dear boy, events quote that is attributed to him, I think is an apt description of what it's actually like. What is the toll? I started a podcast business and it gave me profound anxiety, right? You are running one of the world's biggest economies going through overlapping crises in the face of climate breakdown and resurgent, you know, superpower rivalry and various other things. Do you sleep? What's it like in there? So one of the, one of the things I have always been very lucky with in my life is I'm one of these people that when I was able to get my head down on the pillow. I went to sleep straight That's away. That's why you got such a baby face. You look, you look good, man. Uh, you look good. You look like about 20-year-old. I didn't look as good when I left in, in 2019. Um, I mean, I probably averaged about three and a half hours sleep what? a night over the two years. I would be getting into work just before six and leaving late in the evening. And then, and then when you were home, you know, it was just a constant stream of phone. One of the things I found quite sweet about it, actually, was that the system, both the other senior politicians but also the senior civil servants, are very respectful of the Prime Minister's private time. So they won't, very few people will just ring the PM up to ask them a question when the Prime Minister isn't in debt. Like Gavin. But they are not yeah. so respectful of the Chief of Staff's private time. So this queue would form at my desk during the day of people, you know, what does the Prime Minister think about this? I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think the Prime Minister will think? And the weekends, it was just a constant. My wife would say, you know, I was at home at the weekends, but I was not actually present because I was just on my phone the whole time building this series of, queries and questions and need for decisions. I always feel bad talking about this, Dan, because you paint a picture of you getting so little sleep and the pressure you're under and it must have been a nightmare, but it is actually the most amazing job for the reason that you started on, which is that you've gone into politics because you want to make a difference in your local community, in the country, and here you are, never having expected to be there, right at the centre of government with the opportunity to do that. So although it was an incredibly tough period and it, it had an effect on my health and my wider quality of life, it is also, and I think it's a really important point to make, the most amazing job that I will ever do. I can imagine, and I've read enough memoirs and talked to enough people that you, you must miss it as well. Yeah, a bit. Not as much as I, I thought I would. I think that um, because I'm not 
a complete fan of the current government, I don't find myself pining that I was still there. So there are definitely days. There are days when something interesting happens in the world. And I think, well, I'd love to be in the briefing room and actually know what's really gone on there rather than what you and I have been told about in the news. So there are definitely days when you miss it. But I, I don't find myself pining for it. Yes, the Dan Snow's history. Talking to Theresa May's Chief of Staff, Gavin Barwell. More coming up. What are Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, obviously, you're going to give lots of other interviews on podcasts and TV shows about your scathing criticism of Boris Johnson and various other people currently in power. But 
I guess again, I, I don't. I, I kind of don't want to get into the the punch and Judy as much, even though I despise Boris Johnson for the Heat of a Thousand Suns. But I, I think what I'm interested in is, could you talk to me about as somebody who's been inside the building and maybe a part of this process yourself? But we have seen an erosion in democracy. You know, a sentence I never thought I'd say. Both in here in the UK, we got a powerful populist nationalist challenge in France, obviously Poland, um, Hungary has effectively lost their democracies in many ways. America is seems like it's a couple of votes away from a, a catastrophe in that respect. Have you got thoughts about that? Or is that alarmist? Or is something weird going on? The way the executive is treating the legislature here in the UK at the moment, the norms that are being broken, is there something going on? Without being complacent, I would be less concerned about here than I would be about some of the other countries that you have listed off there. And the one that would most particularly concern me is what's going on in the US at the moment. I saw some fascinating and very scary polling the other day, which found that 36% of Americans think that Joe Biden didn't win the election. And 51% think there is a good chance in the next five years that an election will be overturned by politicians from the actual result. I think we're all a bit complacent about what happened after the last presidential election because actually it wasn't ultimately successful. But you know, it was a profound challenge to the result of a democratic election in the country that is the leader of the free world. And you're right to name some other countries. Now, I don't, you know, you gave your view on the current prime minister. As I said, I'm not a, an alloy fan thing. I wouldn't be quite as critical <laughs> as, as you do because I see good and bad in him. Right? I've known him for a long time and I've seen some of the good qualities that he has and some of the things where I take a very different view. I wouldn't be complacent here, but I don't think the problems we have here are as profound as they are in some of the it- What is going on, you asked me? Yeah, because there's some quite strange similarities, right? Like this kind of post-truth thing, like Boris Johnson just saying there's no border in the Irish Sea, and there just is one. That's very weird. Isn't that weird? Or is that the politics we grew up with? Maybe. No, I think that is a change. Like, I think that, first of all, underlying all of this, we've seen a sort of rise in populism on both the left and the right. And what's caused that? You know, I'm not probably the best person to answer, but I would suggest that there are at least two factors behind it. One is a sense in the aftermath of the global financial crisis that liberal democracy was not delivering for everybody and an increasing sort of frustration with the status quo. I also think sort of social media has had a coarsening effect on our politics. And as you say, Sometimes I found in the debates on Brexit, people thought this was a peculiarly British phenomenon, and I don't think it is. I think you've listed off some examples from other countries around the world. I think this, there, is, there is a global phenomenon here. And more generally, you're seeing a sort of realignment. When I, when I got into politics, the divide was basically about economics. Now, essentially, the arguments were primarily about how much should we be taxed, how much should the government spend, how much should the government regulate. Whereas now it feels to me like the dividing lines in politics are often about culture and identity. And those are harder gaps to compromise on than on economics, where if you and I have a slightly different view about the size of the state, we can probably both live with something in the middle, right? Whereas these cultural identity questions, they're not so easy to find compromises. You know, it is, of course, you know, you're right, social media, it's the post-2008, it's these things. What are you seeing that makes you think these are some solutions? We're all getting pretty good at diagnosing the problem now. And are there things that... You've been in it again, as a man that's been in it, in the arena. What can we do to refortify our commitment to democracy, to refine that sort of confidence in liberal democracy? So 
I think, first of all, politicians at the centre need to have answers to the questions about how do you get liberal democracy to deliver for the broad mass of people in terms of improved living standards. So that is about equity and those are policy answers. I think in terms of social media, there's a debate going on right now about anonymity, you know, that you obviously got to have some protection for whistleblowers. But I think my experience as an elected MP is that what people will say to you from an anonymous social media account is so different from what anyone would ever say to you face to face if they met you, that that needs addressing. I also think, and this is something politicians need to do. So I got into politics in a slightly nerdy way, Dan. Right? I got into politics through debating. Hey, listen, you're among friends here, man. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and people often think to be a good debater is about being good at public speaking. And I would actually argue that one of the core skills in being a good debater is being a good listener, is listening to what the other person is saying and working out, okay, where are the strong bits of their argument that I need to kind of dodge? And where are the vulnerabilities that I can pick apart a little bit? And I think what we're missing in our politics at the moment is too many people live their lives in an echo chamber where they just listen to people who've got the same views as them and are from similar backgrounds to them. You're never going to learn anything from them. Now, what I enjoyed about being an MP sometimes was hearing people speak who maybe I didn't have the same views as them, but they had different life experiences to me and brought different perspectives to things. And you could learn things from that and adapt your own views a bit in response to what you heard. And that feels to me like what is missing a bit from our political debate. You're talking to a guy here who debated Boris Johnson once, and I have to say, I didn't see much listening over the other side of the stage. There was, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, broadcasting. There wasn't a lot of listening. I tell you what, you mentioned policy to re-engage people, to convince people that liberal democracy is the best vehicle for delivering the greatest happiness to the greatest number. What about constitutional change? Again, you're among nerds here, so just let's get into it. Are there things that we can do to shore up? You know, there's huge debates in the States at the moment about things like the uh, filibuster, for example, but other things in Britain we can do around the House of Lords, which you remember, around the voting systems, around ministerial codes or whatever it is. Are there things that you think need to happen that involve actual statute law? So I think there are improvements we can make. I wouldn't overstate how much of a difference they would they would make on their own. And I think some of the economic things are more important. But to give you an example, I've always been in favour of reform of the House of Lords and I haven't changed my view just because I now happen to be in it. I think it's difficult to justify having a second House of Parliament that is wholly appointed. People ought to elect at least the vast majority of its members. On the voting system, probably I'm just betraying my centrism now. I always think the difficulty here is that there is no perfect answer. There is no such thing as a perfect voting system and it kind of depends what you want from it. The strength of first past the post is it gives us a government that has got a majority that can do things and that we can then hold to account about whether it's delivered what it's promised or not. Well, it hasn't done brilliantly. There's first past the post creaking a bit at the moment, isn't it, in a multi-party yeah. system? But that, yeah, that's that's, that's it is, the... but, but you can balance it out. If you have an elected second chamber or a majority elected second chamber, you could use a PR system for that to back the weakness of first past the post is it gives a very strong voice to the big parties and it doesn't capture the full breadth of public opinion. So I think you could combine House of Lords reform with something which tried to address some of the concerns about first past the post. But look, the problems that we're seeing in politics globally, we're seeing them in countries that have PR systems and don't have a House of Lords. So we shouldn't convince ourselves that those changes on their own, even though there might be a case for some of those constitutional reforms, we shouldn't convince ourselves that they're going to solve the thing on their own, because I don't think they will. 
And then speaking of global, I mean, obviously, I believe Brexit was catastrophe in the biggest possible philosophical sense, which is I believe ultimately uh, the biggest problems we face need to be solved internationally, transnationally. And whilst using imperfect things like the UN and the EU to do that is more effective than trying to tackle too much carbon in our atmosphere as, you know, Britain or London or England or Dan Snow. Is it you know, migration, crime, tax evasion, climate breakdown, China? Like these are things we've got to work closer with people, haven't we? So let me first of all just reassure you a bit. I think even the people that campaign for Brexit would agree with your first statement. So they would agree that these problems have to be tackled globally. They would just say it should be through independent nation states cooperating together through the UN. Now, look, I didn't agree with that. I campaigned for Remain primarily for the reason that you said. I think if you look at the threats that we face in the world today, whether that's Russia or China, European countries face the same threats. They have the same views about how to tackle them, and they're more able to do it if they work together to do it. I think back, one of the big things that happened when I was Theresa's chief of staff was the attempted murder of the Skripals in Salisbury with a Russian chemical weapon. And we definitely got a stronger response from European countries because we were part of the EU. And Theresa could go and talk to those 27 other heads of government as a group, present the evidence we had about what happened. It would be much harder to do that now, given the strain in relations and given that we're outside of the club now. So who has benefited most from Brexit? I think Putin will be feeling pretty pleased about it. That was always my sort of biggest concern about it, that wider strategic picture. And more and more of the problems we face are of this global nature, the climate crisis being, of course, the most important example. What's the best help that we can give you? Like, So I'm here going, God damn government would be useless. I'm sitting on my phone. I'm on Twitter being rude to people. I'd never be rude to people if I met them in real life. What is the kind of rights responsibilities of the people? Like when you're in Downing Street, like, look, I'm trying my best here. You could give me a hand. And like, what can we do? So I think right at the moment, just a little bit of solidarity with your MP, whether you agree with them or not, is a good thing. I mean, what happened to the horrific murder of David Amos? I was very touched to see Joe Cox's husband, you know, encourage people just to contact their MP and express some solidarity and respect for what they're doing as public service. It's not an easy job being an MP. And you might have an MP you think is great, who you agree with, and you might have one that you think, I really don't have a lot in common with this person. But the vast majority of them are trying to do the best job that they can, do what they think is right for the country. So that's a good starting point. But then I would also say to people, what we've been through in British politics over the last three or four years has got a lot more people interested in politics. That's a good thing. And people need to get involved. Now, a lot of people say to me that actually the choice that they got offered at the last election between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn didn't feel like a great choice to them. Well, you know, people need to get involved and back people who are closer to their views and encourage them to get along. You know, that's ultimately the reason Theresa didn't succeed, is that whether you agree with her or not, she was trying to sell a compromise on Brexit. And not only did the MPs not want to compromise, too many of the British public didn't want to compromise either. Well, I've got you. I'll let you go now. But let's just quickly get into the weeds slightly. It must be difficult for you guys. She hammered out a workable compromise that was then trashed by a faction led by Boris Johnson, who used it to get rid of her, and then did exactly the thing that they'd most criticised her for. Is that not brutal? Uh, That's politics, I think she would say. I mean, she got trashed by a pincer movement of that group of people, exactly as you said, but also a group of people who were so opposed to Brexit that they wanted a second referendum to try and overturn it. And she got caught in the middle. There's a great quote in the book from Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, where he sort of says, this thing that we've created 
is a compromise. And that's a good thing, but it's also pretty ugly. Yeah, everyone hates compromises. It's a messy, complicated, ugly thing because it is a compromise. And selling that is not easy when, you know, some people were saying, well, let's just break free completely. And other people were saying, no, let's just stop Brexit altogether and overturn it. Those are very simple, powerful, emotive messages. And you've got one person saying, well, hang on, like 52% voted this way and 48% that way. Two of the four nations voted leave, two voted remain. We kind of need to find something that everyone can live with, even if it's not perfect. That's a much more complicated thing to try and sell to people. No, I get that. But the fact that the let's just get out of here gang ended up taking the worst possible part of your deal, like the bit of the, your deal that they hated the most, and then just making that the centrepiece of the new deal is extraordinary. Well, it's even more than that. They, what they did on Northern Ireland, which is what I presume you're referring to, they went back to Theresa had fought for months and months and months to get rid of this idea of a Northern Ireland only arrangement. And the whole of Parliament, the whole House of Commons voted unanimously that nobody could ever accept that. And then they went back to that. But then, you know, if you listen to uh, Tim Shipman, who's the political editor in Sunday Times and sort of doyen of political journalists, made the point that sometimes politics is just the art of the possible. And Boris Johnson realised that actually that's the way I can get it done. Yeah, like Charles de Gaulle. I mean, come on, you know, you get into office and absolutely, the great Machiavelli quote, the promise given was a necessity of the past. The promise broken is necessity of the present. But I mean, still, it hurts, man. It hurts. And I, I feel <laughs> some solidarity yeah. there. For- yeah, so it's less personal. The thing, that, the thing that I find really frustrating, Dan, is that what the consequences have been for Northern Ireland. I think too many people in British politics don't really think about Northern Ireland. They don't have any understanding of how fragile the peace process is there, the very delicate compromises it's built on. And what's been done has disturbed that balance, essentially. You know, you've now got essentially the unionist community saying they want the whole thing torn up. And there's a real threat to the Good Friday Agreement and to the institutions that it created. And that that's what makes me really angry rather than the personal side of it. It's almost like it was bludgeoned through by someone who doesn't ever read anything and has no idea of the details of anything. So the, the, what I say in the book is my frustration. You know, so Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, could not have been more helpful to me when I was the MP for Croydon. Right? And I thought he was a good mayor of London. And I I'm grateful for the help he gave, and I admired the work he did there. But my frustration when he was foreign secretary is exactly that. I could not get him to focus on the detail of what all this meant for Northern Ireland. And he would just say, oh, this is just the EU trying to keep us in their orbit, and it's all made up, it's not real. Well, you know, we see now it is real. Yeah, reality, that's the the thing that Boris has spent much of his career sort of um, (laughs) trying to avoid, I think. Right. Gavin Bauer, thank you very much for coming on. What's your book called? The book is called Chief of Staff, rather unimaginatively. No, it's from Downing Street. Hey, listen, does what's said in the tin. Good luck with it. And I mean, the nice thing is, I guess, about the house laws for you is that you get to keep your hand kind of in, right? You're... Yeah, a little bit. Although, I, to be honest, I spend most of my time now on some of the other things that I'm doing. But what I wanted to do with the book was try to explain to people who don't spend all their lives fascinating over politics, what actually goes on behind that famous black door and how government works during what was a really turbulent period. I mean, how did you, you have, is it three kids? Three boys, yeah. How did you see them during that period? I mean, that's... So it was tough. I think if you were asking that question to my wife, she would say, I didn't see a lot of them for two years. One of the things I say at the start of the book is that politicians like to describe what they do as public service. And that's true, it is. But it's also a selfish thing, right? You choose to do it and you're choosing to put your career at least for a period of your life, is the most important thing. So you kind of have to recognise that and repay the debt down the line. 
episode one of the West Wing, Leo McGarry, White House Chief of Staff, yeah. tells his wife, yeah. she goes, nothing's more important than our marriage. She goes, this is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I have watched the West Wing with my wife. Okay. I don't want to traumatise. I, I don't want to get into that. But um, see you soon. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favour, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.